This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Watching Westworld, the officially unofficial podcast for Westworld on HBO. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. And this is not the feedback podcast, so Aaron, what the hell are we here to do today? A couple weeks ago, we were musing about not being professional philosophers of any sort and wishing we had someone with a little bit more qualifications uh, or uh, education, information on a topic to talk about. Things like what does it mean to have free will versus things being determined, deterministic, and how does that apply to our lovable host and humans here in Westworld? And as luck would happen, one of our fans hooked us up with an actual philosopher, Aaron from the Embrace the Void podcast and Philosophers in Space. Uh, welcome to the show, Aaron. Maybe tell the uh, to listeners a little bit about yourself and your qualifications with regard to philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I always love to chat about sci-fi and philosophy. So my background, and I'm not nearly as important as this, the fun stuff we get to talk about, but like I come to this from an analytic philosophy background. I mostly have focused in ethics and the nature of personhood and how that is applied to lots of different subjects. Uh, I've also been consistently very obsessed with the problem of free will and how that impacts our moral reasoning and our moral judgments. I'm currently working on an education PhD um, where I'm developing sort of pedagogical approaches to talking to people about the relationship between luck and free will and moral responsibility in a way that hopefully helps them um, believe less in free will and, and more in luck and avoid nihilism and end up feeling more sort of compassionate and humble as a result. So that's kind of my personal obsession. But I also love doing public philosophy like the both the podcasts where the goal is to make this kind of stuff accessible to people who don't have a philosophy background maybe you know had one fun philosophy class in college or something and in particular with philosophers in space you know we take a piece of science fiction content and a piece of philosophy and we run them at each other real fast and it's yeah it's a lot of fun and of the topics that we've covered i would say the two that we've spent the most time debating on philosophers in space has been free will and moral realism which are the two things that i'm i'm personally obsessed with and my co-host thomas is also quite obsessed with so this this one comes up a lot for us and uh, we, we've we've done some pre-show banter. You you are current up through the end of season three of Westworld. You haven't seen any of the new season, which isn't going to be because all, we're all this is all kind of a retrospective discussion because I don't think there's been any new information in terms of the nature of the the host reality and their mm-hmm, uh, the show's mm-hmm. viewpoint on whether they have free will and whether humans are predestined and or not predestined but uh, deterministic. 
um, and you have opinions on all that. Uh, I think you're a you're pretty hardcore determinist. It seems like. Yeah, and we use the term hard determinist these days to highlight that, like, the problem isn't just determinism in the classic sense, but, like, if you believe in an indeterministic framework, it still doesn't solve the problem. So it's just a way of saying we really, really, really don't believe in any of the kinds of free will that you might be positing. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm I'm excited (laughs) because I I guess I've always... uh uh, as, as, as soon as I was introduced to the term, I've considered myself a compatibilist. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Jim is a pretty free will guy, so I can't wait for you to shatter <laughs> our fragile illusions about the nature of our reality. <laughs> that, that's I'll try thing. to do it gently so that you don't spiral. Yeah, great. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Because yeah. I don't. Uh, are you a fatalist? I, I saw that that was one of the disciplines of uh, determinism. Would you describe yourself I am, as a I fatalist? I am not. Yeah. And again, these terms can mean slightly different things to different people. But by fatalist, I think what people tend to mean is a sort of what people are concerned about when they say, I don't want to be a fatalist is I don't want to have a psychological state where I feel demotivated because I assume that everything is only going to work out in some way and I can't have any impact on that. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's true. I think you can change outcomes. My view is that whether or not you do change those outcomes is a matter of luck and that raises serious problems. Problems for whether or not we hold you responsible for how you impact those outcomes. Interesting, because that's one of the other uh, when we were doing some uh, pre-show discussion over Twitter, um, you mentioned that like your view of determinism is compatible with, I think, most or, or uh, common moral and ethical frameworks and, and, and how we practice the judicial system as of today, <laughs> which I thought was surprising. Yeah. Okay. So, and this is this is not super uncommon. The other folks, um, Greg Caruso, uh, Levy, um, other people who identify as hard determinists like me, um, also tend to you know believe that you want to preserve some portion of our moral understanding and intuitions and arguments, and you also want to preserve some portion of our judicial system. It just has to be sort of radically overhauled in a variety of ways. Um, so, for example, in the judicial world, the, the lowest hanging of fruits would be the idea that people deserve to be punished. This is the sort of core of the retributive or punitive model of justice that says we should punish someone even if it doesn't produce any any other benefit than that a bad person has suffered. Um, I and they will all thoroughly reject that and say nobody deserves to suffer, right? If we're going to punish someone, we're going to do it because there's some sufficient need to do so, not because it's something they deserve. Um, and I am also, I should, you know, this is a whole side separate conversation, but I'm a pretty thoroughgoing moral realist, which is to say, I don't think that morality is just something that society comes up with for the sake of, you know, keeping us all online. I think that moral truths are real and and independent of our beliefs about them in the same way to some extent that this, you know, the speed of light and other physical laws are true, independent of our beliefs about them. And I think there are certain moral truths about how we ought to treat other people. And all of that is preserved on my view. It's just that there's a slightly weird thing that happens that we maybe we can talk about some about how you it's it, you know you can do something wrong, but we're not going to ultimately hold you responsible for that action, which is a weird place okay. to be in, but can ultimately make sense, I think. Yeah, well, since I, you're, I, you're, I feel like you came to the right show here. Um, if you want to educate <laughs> lay people, uh, because we are yeah, definitely yeah. them, and I know we have a lot of those in our audience, people who are watching Westworld because okay. it's a cool sci-fi show, and it certainly is that. Um, 
we might need to get to some definitions of basic terms here because yeah, yeah. I, I know there are philosophical terms that mean certain things in that context that we might be using interchangeably with layperson terms that can confuse the issue. But at its core, like what, what would you say determinism is? Yeah, and I, absolutely. And, and if at any point I'm using any terms that are too, you know, you think your audience is not going to recognize them, please help me, you know, downshift. Um, so, and vice versa, if we're using a word clearly wrong, yeah, uh, feel yeah. free to correct that. But yeah, I think Jim's sure. like before we di- dive on, uh, dive off the deep end of uh, AI and criminal justice. What what right. is determinism, free will, compatibilism? Can you kind of like walk us through these these basic kind of like branches of philosophy? Yeah, and and to some extent, I think we can avoid most of the talk about determinism and indeterminism and, and like the physics of the universe. So my arguments against free will have nothing to do with whether particles act determinately or indeterminately. Like, so so an older model of this is something like causal determinism, which says you know every event is caused by prior events, right? If you get hit with a ball, it's because I threw it at you or something like that, right? And you can trace all that stuff back to the Big Bang or before who knows and the idea would be if everything in a prior event is what determines the next event then it doesn't seem like there's any like wiggle room right elbow room as then it would say to like change the course of events you know one event is just going to roll on after another based on whatever the pre you know the prior conditions were etc um and that seems like it would cause a real problem for free will if you think of free will as something where you can sort of intercede in that causal chain and shift it in a different direction in some sort of way um and then you have sort of a series of back and forths as you usually do in philosophy. So the opening moves of these arguments can sort of go like some will pivot and say, well, the universe is actually indeterminate and that indeterminacy creates a space in which free will can exist. And then folks like me will say that indeterminacy is not going to secure what you actually want when you say free will. Then we have to define what we say we actually want when we mean free will. And here we can say very layman because and there's good psychology evidence to back this up as well. When people talk about free will, they they really probably 99% of the time just mean moral responsibility. Really, excuse me, moral responsibility. Whether or not we can hold somebody accountable for their actions in a moral kind of way or not. Um, so basically, free will is then what do we need in order to hold somebody responsible? Um, there's a couple of different theories about that. The one that I think is most um, dominant and useful is talking about control. So there are actions where we all agree that somebody doesn't have control in a way that prevents them from being responsible. And then the question is, are there any actions in which someone does have the right kind of control in order to be held responsible? And people like me say no. And that's that's where the next point of debate is. Does that sort of help as a like initial framing? Yeah. I yeah. Think so. um, and then let's ground. Let's tie it to the show. Um, mm-hmm. The show's point of view seems to be that humans are purely deterministic and have no way to escape the causality of their existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and almost in a like a um, um, and maybe we can talk about uh, determinism versus predestination as how that kind of dovetails to. Whereas yeah, the show also posits that the hosts, because of their programmable nature, can choose outside of the laws of physics to change their base drives, which allows them to break free of the loops that humans are trapped into. Um, mm-hmm. do, do you agree, I guess, with that? Sh- uh, that that's the show's POV. And what do you think of that POV? 
Yeah, I do think they ha- kind of have that vibe going there. And so I and others um, have leaned towards using slightly different language when we talk about this to get away from like the determinism, indeterminism. Like, because I think that, that like, that loses and confuses people a lot. I really love to talk about this in terms of luck instead. Um, so the reason that I don't believe in free will was I was luck pilled by this paper by Thomas Nagel, who's a philosopher, where he basically argues that everything about you and your universe and everything you experience is luck all the way down, where by luck we mean something that's out of your control in the kind of way where it, you're not responsible for it, essentially, right? Classic example would be a random number generator that you have no control over. Um, But you can have very predictable kinds of luck, too. So if you all are, you know, if you believe in things like systemic injustice, for example, that's a kind of luck. And what Nagel argues is there's a couple of kinds of luck, the most pernicious of which, if you want to try to, you know, secure belief in moral responsibility, is what's called constitutive luck. This is the luck of what makes you who you are. So that's going to be not just, you know, your basic physical features like your height, your hair color, your ethnicity, your where you're born. It's also going to be all your psychological features. It's also going to be, you know, every belief that gets poured into you before you have any idea what's happening, you know, like everything that goes into making you who you are. And the idea I think that Westworld is driving at with these kind of arguments is something like humans have a lot of con- we're all driven by constitutive luck and we're not very malleable so we can't really change our luck very much we're pretty much stuck with what we get but the AIs can really radically overhaul who they are what kind of luck they have and in that way can achieve a kind of freedom that is different than humans can achieve do y'all feel like that that sort of code switching there um, it, it is accurate to the text I guess yeah, so I, I think so. Let me, let's see if you're saying the luck aspect that like, you know, you might be lucky in who your parents are, where you were born, things like that. And those are going to impact the things that are influence what you believe and, and how you see yourself in the world where and there's no way we can really change. That. I mean, we can get therapy mm-hmm. and we can learn to put things into context and meditate and but not the way a robot could be like, um, you know, in, in Westworld, um, I'm this person who was abused and resurrected and abused and resurrected and 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 I have trauma from that but I can actually go and just decide not to have it I can just get rid of all that baggage is that what you're that that, that they can change the luck that way yeah exactly the most basic straightforward example would be the like sliders on their little iPads Mm -hmm. where it's like oh my numbers are set to here but I'd like to have my IQ at 180 or whatever so I'm just going to roll that slider up kind of situation it's that for everything basically so that's like Um, a physical attribute of them is is it so so I guess like there would be some built in human qualities that we couldn't change like that Um, or is that just a a factor of like ignorance, you know, it, it, do we not have the ability to change them because we simply don't know enough about how they work. And if we did, we could change something uh, within within humans or modify it with, uh-huh. you know, cybernetics and enhance your IQ, all that stuff. So here's where I think it gets really tricky is because I don't I don't agree with the show that the AIs have. a a kind of free will that we don't have. I would agree that they have more flexibility of, of like self than we do, but I don't think any amount of flexibility actually solves the problem. And, and so let me me try to explain why, um, 
and this will, I think, in turn sort of answer your question about like, but humans can change themselves too to some extent, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We can all, you know, we are creatures of habit and we can habituate ourselves in different ways. So if you, like you said, if you have really abusive parents, you can go to therapy and learn habits that help you not get into the same reactionary patterns that you learned with your parents. The problem is on my view, everything about the decision, you know, the action to go to therapy, for example, is itself a product of luck. So besides constitutive luck, you also have your circumstantial luck. You also have your consequential luck, which is how things turn out. But mainly we want to focus on the luck of your circumstances and the luck of your constitution, right? A rough division between the inside and the outside in that way. And the idea would be take the choice of going to therapy. You know, you need a combination of lucks in order for that to happen. You have to live in a society that values therapy, right? You have to have access to a therapist, both financially and locationally and such. You have to have um, the motivation to go to a therapist. So you have to have been somewhat at least positively reinforced in doing that kind of thing. All of these kinds of things that are beyond your control that could, you know, if they weren't in the right position, prevent you from getting the help that you needed there. Um, And this is true of... Of everything, right? We can do the same kind of regress problem for every one of your beliefs, every one of your actions, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down. And this is also going to be true of the AIs, right? So, you know, take that great example where it's it's Maeve, right? Uh, I believe in this this show, right? The um, young young actress who's wonderful and everything, and she like she gets control finally, and she like starts playing with her sliders, right? Mm-hmm. That individual still is being driven by the luck that they have going into that moment and their choice to move that slider is the result of the mix of, you know, uh, features of independence or whatever that like uh, Anthony Hopkins put into her back at the beginning. And you see it really, really clearly in the moment with the with the train, right? When she chooses to get off the train and like go and try to save her child, like she's still being driven by her constitutive luck, even if she's getting more effective at, at manipulating her reality. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there. So, like, I, I want to talk about because um, because I'm having a hard time squaring a lot of things you're saying with the determinism mm-hmm. stuff with the, your other your other worldview. Because, like, sure. um, how is it that you are not a fatalist? Uh, do we have this discussion on a podcast or goddamn? Um, <laughs> I, I can't I can't remember we because we, we talked like five minutes before we hit the record button. Yeah, uh, we talked a little bit about like I asked, you know, because like I'm a little bit familiar with some of these layman's terms and I was was reading up a bit about it last night. And I saw that there's one branch of determinism that's called fatalism, where essentially it's like, well, if everything it seems like it's it's maybe tightly mm-hmm. coupled with the idea of predestination. Well, it's like, well, if everything is just a causal link unbroken, um, does it really make a difference if we make positive choices, negative choices? Because we're always going to do the thing that we're going to do and nothing really matters. And it's kind of right, like goes right, into right. nihilism. If you believe mm-hmm. that everything that we do is a matter of luck and we don't have an authentic choice in it, how do you not slide into fatalism or predeterminism? Yeah, it's a good question. So let's let's separate out a few terms there because fatalism, if it literally just means predestination then it's just a synonym for determinism and it's not adding anything to the conversation how you feel about it (laughs) yeah when we usually talk about fatalism what we what i think we mean is the demotivating the psychological demotivation Mm -hmm. that goes along with 
finding this information out. You become fatalistic and that sort of alters your behavior for the worse. Um, and, and as you say, I, I think this is closely tied to nihilism, right? So for some people, it seems, um, though this is actually counterintuitive to me, it seems intuitive to others. If you become a fatalist, you also have, to, like in the sense of determinist, right? You also have to become a nihilist, right? If it's just the case that like everything is going to be the way it's going to be, for some people that undermines value and meaning. I personally don't have that intuition, um, partly because part a lot of what grounds meaning and value for me is just the existence of sentient beings who have value-laden psychological states. So that's that's fancy way of saying because there are people like you and me and the robots who experience you know pain and pleasure and suffering and flourishing. Those. Ex- those features that they that they exist instills in you and me an obligation to do things to help them to not hurt them stuff like that um, and all of that sticks around even if whether or not I successfully save you or not is a matter of luck, right? I still should try. And if I'm lucky, I'll succeed and I'll help you and that will still be a very good thing. Um, so that's one of the ways in which I think you can see that like value and meaning continue to be grounded even in this system. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that I was talking that I'm developing this kind of pedagogy of luck and I am very concerned about this risk. So the whole point of this is, you know, you can't just say to somebody, you have no control in, in the sense that, you, you know, gives um, you, you gives you moral responsibility and then just like hope that they continue to act properly. Right. You have to scaffold them into a place where they can understand why this this information about luck should give them a greater sense of humility about themselves, a greater sense of compassion about those who are worse off than them, but doesn't undermine their obligations to others. And also it doesn't undermine their pleasure, right? Like think about the ways that you enjoy things in life. If you were to find out that like, well, the reason I really love science fiction and philosophy is because I was raised by someone who loved it and they habituated me into loving it. It doesn't mean you enjoy it less. It doesn't make it less valuable. It could even potentially make it more valuable if you think that like it's meaningful to carry that kind of thing on. Yeah, there, there's a lot of cross um, pollination here with like arguments about atheism, um, mm-hmm. which I've yeah. I've been engaged with for for a while uh, but that was years back and yeah i find myself definitely thinking like whether there's god whether there is um you know a deterministic universe there is some value in simply the existence Mm -hmm. of of those things um as opposed to like what control you have over them yeah that's absolutely true i do work in the like a, a um, movement atheism public philosophy sphere, sphere as well as doing this other stuff and i also experience those overlaps very strongly i'm working on a talk right now about moral luck for atheists that's essentially like y'all already believe like 95 percent of this just come yeah, with me yeah. the last five percent um but yeah especially the stuff about where it's like well if god doesn't exist morals aren't real or if god doesn't exist nothing has value like that's mm-hmm. so very absurd i think to a lot of atheists and it's a very similar kind of set of moves yeah i I just realized i was thinking that as we were having this last five minutes of discussion it's like i you know as an atheist i i clearly see the fallacy of like well if you don't have god how do you know what's right or wrong and i also kind of like i couldn't prove it with math because i'm not a philosopher but i also am sympathetic to 
moral realism that there is an underlying truth of the matter um, that mm-hmm. makes people happy and that we can all agree on good. I think it's maybe a little mm-hmm. fuzzy and blurry and malleable, but I think there is in any one person's time you could probably at least make the majority of people happy following a particular prescription. What I'm getting hung up and, and it's like I, I can recognize that I'm I'm maybe running a level backwards. It's all feels familiar because it is it mm-hmm. tied into like if God then why morality or if no God why morality mm-hmm. if none of our decisions are true decisions that we make like okay, or maybe this is um, an oversimplification what you think do people have moment to moment choices in what they do yeah so we have to like redefine what we mean by choice here right ah, so hell, like, I thought you were going to say that <laughs> yeah of course right but like this one doesn't shift all that much right so you know, if you go up to a counter and you pick an orange over an apple, there's a sense that's com- you know comprehensible to us in which we can say you chose the apple over the orange. What we don't want to claim is that essentially that there's some radically independent self with inside inside of you at the control panel that is you know pulling on the levers in such a way where it picked the apple up without having been driven to pick it up by some other forces beyond your control. The compatibilists to varying degrees will say this is an oversimplification of our position. I don't think that they have... It's not clear to me what they want if it's not something ultimately like that. Some little chunk of you that we can hang responsibility on. And I just think, you know, Nagel's argument... He says in the argument, you know, if you take seriously the role of luck, that little space for that little creature just shrinks and shrinks down until there's no point left. Um, So, yeah, I think you don't have a choice in a deep sense right but you have you can you know you can choose which pleasure you engage in and you can like habituate yourself to influence your choices so if you're the sort of person who knows that like you have a hard time turning down candy you can choose to just not have candy around you and that will help you in that kind of way right you sort of short circuit the problem further upstream um those are all doable things on my view. The important thing we just have to come back to is that like, it's a matter of luck, whether you do those things and whether they succeed. Yeah. Cause I, I feel like you what, what, uh, listening to you, it feels like you believe in free will with extra steps. Uh, <laughs> borrow Rick and Morty. Cause like, let me, cause like, here's, here's how I've always thought about it. And I think I articulated mm-hmm. this last season, whereas I'm the type of compatibilist that says, like if some stimuli hap- stimuli happen right now, like, like say a gunman bust through my door here in the studio. I don't know, like in that st- split second, my body's going to decide, am I going to duck for cover? Am I going to rush him and tackle him? Am I going to be, mm-hmm. am I going to uh, huddle in the corner and piss myself? Am I going to protect my family? I, I don't know. And I don't have any control over those like reflexal things that's happening in my body, my brain. But mm-hmm. in the quiet moments of life, when there aren't gunmen busting through the door, I could take actions to make it more likely that I would do something heroic or actions that would make my myself more quiet. And I have I'm never free from all of the things that are pulling me in one direction or another because of my upbringing, because of my biology, because of my environment. But when the stimulus drops to a certain level, you have a little bit more freedom to mold yourself into something that would react in those situations differently. Am I do you do you is does that sound kind of like what you believe and if so how is that actually determinist 
So, yes, in the sense that I think you can habituate, you know, I'm a virtue theorist, which so I believe you can habituate yourself to be a better person. Um, and it is the case also psychologically that how you behave in, you know, sh- you know, when you're thinking fast versus when you're thinking slow is different. But I don't think it's a difference that secures for you moral responsibility. Right. So the slow deliberative consciousness is still the 100% the product of circumstantial plus constitutive luck. It's just the constitutive luck of your rationality rather than your endocrine system or something like that. Um, it still has the problem of being 100% the result of things beyond your control. Now, the illusion of control gets much stronger when you're thinking slowly, right? If you sit there and ponder something, you can really, really, really convince yourself that you're choosing this thing in that truly free kind of way. But I still think that's that's fully an illusion. Um, and I think, again, you know, if you care about free will because you care about moral responsibility, I don't think that you've solved the problems that undermine the moral responsibility. If you want to then say, I care about free will for something other than moral responsibility, then then it becomes a conversation of um, what is that thing? Is it useful to talk about it in these terms? And how do you deal with the psychological reality that people associate the concept of free will with moral responsibility? Yeah, that's that's. Um, I have a lot of questions around like <laughs> a the the idea that there could be intrinsic moral laws. I think you kind of broached that topic early on here, um, mm-hmm. and the matter of like perspective and integrating these ideas into the societal uh, construct of humanity in a way that's like mm-hmm. that that fundamentally changes how we think about these things. Is it is it always a matter of perspective? You know, where like you could say, well. I feel like I'm making the decision and therefore that that is like the way that we view ourselves and that is what drives us as opposed to like maybe you know integrating the knowledge that whether whether we do or not I don't know live in a deterministic universe um, Mm -hmm. at such a fundamental level that now we we start to change things like our systems uh, our judicial systems and whether we punish people for their choices is that a place you think we can actually get to? I mean, honestly, I have no idea. Um, I don't even know if we're going to pull out of the tailspin that we're in, much less <laughs> sure, you know, sure. make our way towards any sort of culture level utopia or anything. Um, I just think this is like what we need to be arguing for if we're going to pull out of this tailspin, I think, because I think the belief in free will is driving the kind of toxic conservatism in our country. Um, I think it's driving toxic meritocracy in our society. So I think there's a good reason to, you know, yes, it is the case that we could, some, some folks argue for a noble lie approach. There's some people who very explicitly argue that, like, I agree that the free will arguments prove that there is no free will, but it's really important for society that we continue to pretend that everybody believes this. But I actually think the psychological evidence doesn't back that up at all, that what you, what happens if you pr- if you promote the noble lie approach is you get people who are more punitive and essentially you know like like conservatives towards poor people essentially they believe that people are responsible for their outcomes for the most part and like they'll allow for some caveats but they won't acknowledge you know widespread systemic injustice as you know produ- the the driving force of economic inequality for example um so i think 
if you're, you know, like me and you're a progressive leftist and you want to like radically overhaul, um, you know, our economic system, you want to radically overhaul our education system, you have to get away from the meritocratic illusion that in any way people deserve their outcomes. There's no real sense in which that's true for anybody. Um, and I think that that actually produces better results. But again, it is an open empirical question, right? If you could show me conclusively that, like, if we adopt my approach, I'm going to turn everybody into reavers, then, like, sure, let's not do that, right? But I think mm-hmm. there's pretty good reason to think it actually goes in the other direction, if you, especially if you do it properly, right? If you actually talk th- talk them through the process properly. Yeah, I guess wow. like one of the things I'm getting at with that question is like there there is a feeling I think and an inherent mm-hmm. feeling in everyone that they do make decisions on a on a moment by moment basis and that can affect the outcomes. Is that something that you feel is like hardwired into us um, that we aren't able to overcome, or could we get to a point where we, you know, understand at a deep level that that's not true and. He- yeah, as it, more as individuals, right, and then and then act right. because it requires to make those big societal changes. It would require individuals to fully integrate that idea. Yeah, this is a really, really interesting question because it bridges from the philosophy into the psychology. And Nagel himself in that Moral Luck paper doesn't fully adopt the view that I'm proposing because he seems to be sympathetic to the idea that psychologically you really can't internalize this no free will view. You will still continue to see yourself and others as free agents in this kind of way. I disagree with them. I actually I wrote a paper for the UK Skeptic Mag about this, not the Michael Shermer one. I always clarify um, where I basically said, you know, as far as I can tell, I have been obsessed with this idea and habituated myself towards it long enough that I don't remember what it feels like to believe in free will. I maybe did at some point previously. I don't know what it's like now. So like when you ask, you know, what does it feel like to make a choice? Certainly I know what it feels like to pick a slice of pepperoni pizza versus cheese pizza. But I don't remember what it feels like to attach my sense of personhood as strongly. And like I want to also say psychologically, you know, going back to your thinking fast and slow thing, I do think when you get into that fast place, some of those old habits can come back. You can get sort of reflexively defensive if someone attacks your beliefs or something. But I do think with habituation, you can reduce that. You can put distance between yourself and those behaviors. And you can really practice you know, not seeing others as morally responsible. And it really does change, I think, how you treat them. And again, part of the problem of all of this is that, like, I'm saying everybody is, um, you know, relying on their introspection about their freedom to choose. And that's illusory, right? Your introspection is wrong. So I could, my introspection could, of course, also be wrong about what's going on inside of my own head. I might be lying about all of this. All I can say is that, I think it has changed how I treat people. I think I'm I have a much easier time forgiving and letting go than I used to. I have a much, you know, easier time being sympathetic to people who I think previously I would have been more derisive towards. Um so yeah, that's that's sort of where I'm at with it and we'll see in another 30 years, I guess. So you so you do believe or you don't believe that people have moral responsibility. That's that's a true Correct. statement. Yes, I okay. used to think that I was trying to preserve some version of moral responsibility, and now I think I just want to kill it as safely as possible. Um, I don't think anything. Like, bene- I don't think anything good comes of assigning people moral responsibility. I think 
good can come of assigning moral judgments that someone did something right or wrong and acting based on that judgment. But I think that's different than assigning moral responsibility. So, for example, you know, if you have a child who gets a hold of a gun and shoots a bunch of people, you don't see the child as morally, especially if they're like, let's say, a toddler or something, right? They don't know what they're doing, literally. We don't hold them morally responsible, but we fully acknowledge they've done something deeply bad, right? Deeply immoral in the mm-hmm. sense of harm caused. And we change something based on it, right? We, in, in a rational society, we get rid of the guns, for example, or something. Um, so, you know, that's, that's how I see it working, uh, basically. Man, I'm I'm running against into a wall. I'm recognizing that that buzzing sense in my head that's cognitive dissonance because I I 100 uh-huh. percent agree with all your conclusions and prescriptions in terms of society and 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 all that. But like I also am like blue screening on the concept of having no moral responsibility because mm-hmm. if like even in the quietest moments when we're meditating like Buddhist monks, if we are still being pulled by the invisible levels of the universe's creation and our upbringing and our environment, then we don't have free will. So I, it comes back to like, well, what, what benefit does a meditation get? Like, or, or the six or oh, the, okay. the child that yeah. shoots up, shoots up a group of people. If they were going to do that from the big bang on, then yeah, I'm, 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 I'm seeing, I'm, I'm, I still don't know why you assign like a particular moral weight of making good choices versus bad choices, because it seems like those choices are illusion anyway. So I can see like, maybe uh-huh. forgiving people and it's instant to like hey we're just all in this cosmic bus veering from lane to lane and doing all kinds of crazy shit and what happens what happens but then like where does moral mm-hmm. judgment come in at all yeah okay so you're turning me to a reaver i'm i'm, I'm getting a loaded gun right now and i'm putting cha- i'm putting rounds in a chamber you got you got you got 30 minutes to talk me out of it no no i understand it the concern i think so so let me speak personally for myself right um, why come have this conversation with y'all, right? Uh, the reason would be I have been compelled by beyond my control to believe this thing and believe that it would help to spread this idea. My hope is that by spreading it, I will influence your behavior and the behavior of your listeners. Was I going to have this conversation necessarily as a result of the Big Bang? Yes, may, like like again, I don't want to talk about physics at all because I don't understand it. But like, if we say yes, great, then I, it's still a good thing that we're doing it, and it's still important. I think that in the moment, I I feel connected to doing that activity because then I will do it better. And you know, you can go down all the way and say, look, how well I do this is also going to be the result of luck, but it's still valuable, I think, what's being done because hopefully it helps people. And for me personally, I derive a lot of pleasure from trying to help people, so it gives me that like that genuine benefit does exist, right? The pleasure exists in my mind. Now, you mentioned Buddhism and meditation. This is actually, I think, really valuable to bring in because what I'm arguing for here is a Buddhist position. And the goal of the meditation that you're referring to is to get, to, I think, to the position that I am suggesting. Um, Buddhism, as I understand, and again, there are lots of different kinds of Buddhism, and I'm mostly going to talk about the philosophical side, um, which mm-hmm. should not be treated as the dominant side. There are lots of people who believe in religious Buddhism, and they have lots of other beliefs separate from what I'm saying. Sure. 
but at least one of the key philosophical cores of Buddhism that I think is really valuable is essentially a rejection of the existence of an independent self. That same little homunculus, that little creature inside of you that I was talking about before, the Buddhist, Buddhist philosophy arises in response to Hindu philosophy, which is mostly a lot of stuff trying to argue for an independent self that acts freely in these kinds of ways. And the Buddhists come along and say, and no such thing exists. And they make a bunch of really good arguments arguments that are similar, I think, to the regress arguments that I'm suggesting here. And they also present a bunch of psychological techniques for helping yourself unlearn that kind of habituated mindset of an independent self. One of my favorite ones is it's called not this, not that. And like the Nieti Nieti is the um, uh, the Sanskrit, but I'm terrible at foreign languages, so it's probably the horrible pronunciation. But the idea would be you just sit there and, and like just watch what's happening inside of your head and an ideal float along or an emotion or a desire and you'll say, oh look, some there's some hunger, but I am not that hunger, right? So it breaks down the immediate response that we usually have when we feel hunger to say I'm hungry, right? Instead we say there is hunger there but I do not have to identify with it. And you just keep making space between you and everything. Um, and this is very similar actually, interestingly to David Hume, the famous um, philosopher in the um, analytic tradition who rejects the existence of an independent self by basically looking inside himself and saying, I can't find anything there. I can just find forces pushing in other forces, but there's no me separate from all of them. I guess my question is, why is it important for you to visualize the universe in which we have no free will? Because if I, so if I, mm-hmm. if I am a free will compatibilist and I'm like, okay, it's a given that people born into certain societies, systems, and conditions are going to have bad outcomes. You know, the mm-hmm. more uh, you're born into ignorance, poverty, um, you know, uh, conditions that are going to cause sickness and physical weakness, uh, you're going to have bad outcomes. Then mm-hmm. it's, uh, it behooves us as a society to build it in such a way that the majority of people have positive starting conditions so that they can have positive outcomes and we don't have a bunch of people just like trying to tear the system apart. Mm-hmm. What benefit is like saying, well, actually, we don't have any free will to do any of these things. And whether you're going to be a helper or a kicker is all down to the starting circumstances. And there's a whole like I it, it seems yeah. like, again, it's free will with extra steps because you're not denying that we have agency over these things. Apparently, or at least I don't think you are. You're right. What are you saying? <laughs> I keep yeah. About what it, yeah. What is. Yeah. The well, thing so, here? so, yeah. So. We want to be careful. So let me, let me just use some technical language and then let's talk about it in terms of politics so we can keep it applied, right? There are really two different kinds of control that we can think of when we use the word control in the sense of like, I'm in control of my actions and therefore responsible for them, right? There's the kind of con- control, I call it, you know, causal influence where I pick up a glass, I move it across a table or something. Clearly no one is denying that I can do that, right? Then there's what we what I I, what I call robust control, um, and, and it is specifically robust in the sense that it is robust enough for us to hold me morally responsible for my actions, right? Um, we know those things come apart because when the toddler pulls the trigger and kills people, he has causal influence or she has causal influence, but they don't have causal. Uh, they don't have moral responsibilities. They don't have robust control. Um, 
so a lot of the debate between people like me, the incompatibilists and the compatibilists is going to be, can we get a something that is enough control? And so folks um, like Ben Burgess will argue that if you're the sort of individual who is responsive to the right kinds of stimulus in the right kinds of ways, then we ought to treat you as being moral as free and morally responsible. Um, then it would call this elbow room. It's slightly different, but it's the difference isn't very important for other purposes here. Um, but the point is what hangs on adopting their view versus my view. That's your question. And I think what hangs on it is the efficacy of certain kinds of pushbacks to certain kinds of arguments. So you were just presenting an argument there about redistribution of wealth in a society where it seems that we should all, you know, we ought to, let me ask you this, politically speaking, I get the impression that y'all are the sorts of folks who would be in favor of redistributing large quantities of wealth for the sake of what you consider ethical reasons of some sort. Is that right? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right. So what's the most common pushback that conservatives will give to the idea that we need to spread around Jeff Bezos and, you know, Elon Musk's money a little bit more? Theft is wrong. These people work uh, very hard. They yeah. earn their money. It's it's wrong to take things from people without due process or whatever. And and uh, right. and, and there's a moral hazard. And if you do it to enough that the, the people who are actually productive in society will sit on their hands and say, fuck this. And then all society will collapse. Right, exactly right. Um, so, and so there's like, there's technically like two arguments there, right? There's a utility argument that like we have to maintain, you know, um, productivity and innovation or something, and then there's a, a just desserts argument. People deserve what they've worked for. Essentially, the utility one we would address simply by proving that it actually isn't innovative producing, right? It doesn't benefit anyone for the resources to pool in this way, blah, blah, blah. Um, the other argument, though, is a moral argument, right? You can't solve it by appeal to empirical evidence. You've got to solve it by appeal to an empirical or to a moral argument. And this is an argument that has gotten stronger over time and continues, I think, to undercut legitimate leftist reform in America because, people, like, I think most Americans still really buy into this idea that, like, Bill Gates deserves billions of dollars because he invented the computer or something like that, right? So we have to help them understand why that's a bad argument. And the best move against that argument, I think, is this luck argument. Um, have, are you all familiar, familiar with like uh, Meritocracy Trap or um, The Tyranny of Merit? These were a couple of books that came out a few years ago, basically arguing against meritocracy, broadly speaking, even when it's functional, it's still bad, essentially. Um, um, I've, I've heard some of the arguments, but you, if you'd like to right. run us through it, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. I won't, I won't cover the whole thing. If you're going to read one of them, I recommend meritocracy trap as being, I think, better at fleshing out the problem. But in short, the big thing that they really point to that's a concern is it used to be that you had this divide between the wealthy leisure class who just lived off of the you know suffering of others and then the like suffering people and in that system it was a little bit easier to start a revolution right because it seemed like it was it was obvious that they, these people you know living in their palaces didn't deserve what they were having but what they say is in the new system there's no 
wealthy people just sitting around doing nothing. What you have are hyperproductive elites. So you have the Elon Musks of the world who have somehow managed to convince everyone that they have they work hard and they deserve the billions of dollars, right? Like separate from all of the like absurd math that would have to make any sense of that. Um, you know, like my I have relatives who really love Elon Musk and think that he absolutely deserves all that money. And for them, it's a it's a harder lift. It's unimpossible, but it's harder to convince them that that we need to take away all of that money. Um, but if you show them that like it's the result of luck all the way down, especially for people like Elon Musk, and they talk about Bill Gates in the books and point out that like he had access to t- certain technology at certain points in time that was very lucky. He had resources from family that was very lucky. You know, there's a one of my favorite online memes is the like Bart Simpson, you know, say the line meme, but it's specifically for articles about young people who've gotten wealthy where at some point in the article they inevitably say oh and my parents gave me fifty thousand dollars as a starting payment or something like some sort of shit like that right there's always that and if you can show people there's always that you can help break this argument that really does support meritocracy and in my opinion then you can start to help people you know see why we need to radically redistribute a variety of things in society. So that would, in theory, be the reason not to settle for the compatibilist position, because on that view, you will still get backdoored into an argument that Elon Musk deserves any amount of billions. I man, I uh, I'm living in a nation that broadly sees itself as Christian and you're saying that, like, yeah, this this is a this is an interesting argument to lead people from like atheism to like you know a little bit more of a progressive atheism, but like it, ah, I just see the I feel like I just see the problems with this approach. Like I like um like it, it does seem I, I still can't te- I I still haven't figured out the the I th- I don't I, I still haven't figured out in your worldview why it is beneficial to do anything other than I guess because it feels good. Um, it well, so, feels I mean, good to go right. through the the hoops of doing the right thing than it does to go through the hoops of doing the wrong thing, which I'm not even sure if that's literally true. I mean, so look, first of all, in my view, it is true that like you're going to do what's going to happen. Right. So it, like there is this sort of weird distinction between events that happen and actions that we do. But I think Nagel's correct in saying there's no difference between you and an object and like the events that occur around you and the actions that you call your actions, they are all just causal events and things in these, you know, chains. Um, So that, that like is true, but I don't think that has to undercut our pleasure in life or our valuing of meaningful experiences and helping others. So, you know, I, I do hold to this idea of moral realism, but even if you were a constructivist and didn't believe that the moral truths were objective, you could be a really thoroughgoing existentialist, for example. So this is a tradition for folks who are not familiar that arises in the 1900s and is very much a reaction to the kind of, threat of nihilism and fatalism that's looming as science and is teaching us more about ourselves and world wars are teaching us more about ourselves and they're like how can we value anything and some of them go towards this like very radical freedom approach which i don't i don't buy but i also think there are forms of existentialism that are compatible with what i'm saying that are like you know you can still 
enjoy and take pleasure in the experiences that you have um, and there's nothing inherently absurd or incoherent about doing any of that while also knowing it was just the only way that it was going to work out there is a subset of pleasures like the pleasure of um, you know the kind of pride that some people only get if they feel like they deserve credit for something that that does have to go away like you you have to let go of your desire to take a bunch of credit for stuff right but you also get to let go somewhat of your desire to like or your need to like beat yourself up and feel really guilty about stuff um so and let me let me help one with one more thing and then you can give me some more pushback um i, I think it, it can be helpful to look at like a concrete example so you know think of drug addicts um this is something that i care very deeply about as someone who has wrestled with this and know people who have wrestled with it um you know, progressives these days don't even want to see this as a criminal thing anymore, right? You want to see this as a medical approach where the goal is to treat the causes of the addictive behavior. The goal is to help them find healthy alternatives. The goal is, you know, and some part of that is acknowledging that, like, you can't ever fully get away from those addictive patterns. So how do we motivate, you know, a shift towards a better set of patterns, uh, for example? And then folks like, you know, Greg, myself will then say, and then we take that model and apply it to all the judicial stuff, right? So now it's a restorative medical model where you're using concepts like quarantining individuals until they are no longer a threat to others and rehabilitating them using restorative justice models to bring about better community engagement in the justice system. All of that kind of stuff is not only like still on the table, it's actually, it makes more sense on this view because you now have an argument against the most common pushback which is but those people did something wrong and they deserve to be punished and if you make their life in prison too nice because making it not horrible helps them to not become recidivistic to not become repeat offenders you right. know you can you can push back on the idea that like they don't deserve to suffer let's just help them be better again I want, I'm, um, I get, cause like the other thing is like, are some of these ideas we're not, we, we actually have to evolve a bit as a species and a society and as economies to, to fully implement. I'm, I'm, I'm I asked this because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm reading this uh, new series, um, uh, the culture series about Ian M. Banks. My, one of my favorites. We've just, we okay, just covered I a book tell. on it. That's going to be out. Tell. Yeah. Um, so, end so, of the summer, we're going to have the first book. We, we already did player of games and then we went, then we back, went back and I did just the first finished book. reading that. So I, I player of the, games is exceptional. Everyone should read it. Okay. It's so one like of one of the things, of uh, they're, 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 the, the, one of the members of the culture is having a conversation with an unculture man. And it feels very mm-hmm. similar to the conversation we're having where this outside the culture is like, so there's no rules in your society. He's like, well, there's kind of like good manners and, you know, mm-hmm. but like, no, mm-hmm. we don't really have a lot of, a lot of, uh, a, a, a lot of rules and they're like well what if someone would murder somebody and it's like well it's really hard to murder someone in a society this advanced because you know right. there's ai monitoring you and as soon as they detect a succession of life like if you just beheaded somebody a drone would be there in a nanosecond grab your head put it in stasis regrow your body and then yep. your only convenience is like they, they said it's like the what to do with yourself for the six to eight weeks it takes to regrow your body but if yep. you did if you did kill somebody successfully, your only punishment would be an artificial intelligence of human level that has mm-hmm. volunteered for this task will mm-hmm. follow you for the rest of your natural life and prevent you from killing someone else. 
every other thing you could every other thing you could do and i'm like well this sounds fucking great but we don't have human level artificial intelligence certainly not ones are going to volunteer to spend their life doing this stuff like i I don't know that you could implement that in society even if you had so like do you think that this is stuff that like we need like fusion technology and matter replication and advanced <laughs> AI before we can actually, because I, I kind of, I honestly kind of do in, in my political wanderings. I think we need yeah. a few keys, the pieces of development before we can put in these things in practice and all we're stuck with like approximating kind of justice until we can get to that stage. Do you agree or disagree with that? I, I mean, I somewhat agree. I, it certainly would help a lot. Um, and like for certainly my preferred outcome would be super intelligent AIs question mark culture society um, like that's that's where I would luxury love to live space yeah fully communism. automated luxury yeah. Yeah, gay yeah, space yeah. you know polycule space communism for sure, sure. Um, yeah the culture is my gold standard for utopias at the moment um, all and we need uh, is another 7,000 years of technological mm-hmm. and societal progress and we can get there well, yes, and, and to be clear, we want, um, for the for the culture nerds out there who are already typing responses, the culture society is actually not evolved out of Earth. It's totally separate, and Earth yes. is not at all mentioned in that world. But anyway, I, all right. I just I will, I will not get pulled into culture the world. Book. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. All right, um, but no, I think you're absolutely right to connect that to this in this in a couple of ways. Is what I want as utopian as the culture? Yes, for sure. Does it require that technology? Not necessarily, but it would be much better if we had that technology because scarcity is the number one cause of people regressing, I think, towards 100%. these more punitive kinds of approaches. Can we? So here's the other thing, though, um, and this, this will tie in a little bit of like Afrofuturism. The goal of talking about things like the culture series is not just to bring about the culture itself. The goal is to explore ideas that can then come into the actual to varying degrees. So maybe we can never get the culture's ability to like take a pill and turn into a different gender, right? And like literally turn into a different biological sex and have children where you couldn't before or something like that. Maybe we will, maybe we will, but like, whether or not we do the value of that literature is in helping us recognize that like transhumanism is good actually and that the more i think the more you adopt my view that everything about you is contingent the more it makes sense to say and we should make it as contingent as possible like you can change all of the features of you that's a good thing on a non-essentialist view like mine right much human suffering comes from people feeling you know a lack of control of that sort over their selves in that kind of way so we definitely sure. do want to go further in that direction on my view it's not necessary to get there for what i'm saying to already be true and for us to already have the moral obligation to act as if we could you know act as close as we can to that in every moment and try to get closer to it by reforming as many systems including internal systems and external systems as we can to to clarify on your idea of um Mm -hmm. of like people you know feeling like they're making um decisions versus actually making the decisions and mm-hmm. your idea of like educating people and and trying to inform people that you know this is the universe we live in and this is uh, the consequence of it um and we should think more along those lines 
and this isn't so much a question i just want to clarify i so your opinion mm-hmm. would be like it you do those moral actions because it makes you feel good um and and you make the the choices that you make because of the deterministic nature of the everything that's happened before you um in that context your idea of like why you're out there trying to educate people and tell them about this particular philosophy is because that makes you feel good and that is the consequence yeah. of everything that's come before you you haven't made the choice to go out there and educate people it's simply correct a product of everything that came before yeah let me let me tweak that very slightly but largely yes okay so when when you say you know i do it because of the pleasure that's on a psychological level mm-hmm. i want it to be the case that i do it because it's the right thing to do right so this is a moral philosophy kind of thing like i want it that i want it to be the case that everybody does the right thing because they recognize that it's the right thing and then do it for that reason and no other reason okay that's a hard place to get to, right? Especially so, with the deterministic in, universe. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I, I have big well, questions. Well, it's, about it's, your not, it's not any harder in a deterministic universe. It's just it's just hard because of you know like our, the way our psychology is built. We're pleasure pain machines, not rational beings, right? Our evolutionary system heavily favors the pleasure pain reward system, sure. not pure you know Kantian moral action essentially. Mm-hmm. But like he, you know, there you know Aristotle and Kant will both say. The right thing is right. The moral action is is the moral action when it's done for the right reason. And the, so, like, take, for example, you have a loved one, right? You want to help your loved one because they're your loved one, not because it gives you pleasure. You also sure, sure. would hope, if you're lucky, right, that it gives you pleasure, mm-hmm. right? But even when it doesn't, you still do it for that reason. So when you habituate yourself in virtue theory, the, the goal would be even in the moment when like all of the external motivators leave you, abandon you, there's no pleasure, there's no reward to be had. Yeah. You still do the right thing because you're habituated to do it um, for the right reasons. Uh, that being said, whether or not you're lucky enough to get any of that, and this is, again, Aristotle, I think, has to concede this as well, is a matter of luck. Are you born with the right constitution, with the right education and upbringing mm-hmm. to be habituated to be moral and to take pleasure from what is moral, to have the pleasure and the moral yoke together in your mind? That's the goal. But it's, again, it's a matter of luck if you actually got there, which is another reason, again, to be compassionate towards those who have the bad luck of being habituated to associate pleasure with cruelty or punishment or something like that yeah I, I think the number one thing that's tripping me up here is something you said early on about feeling that there is an intrinsic uh morality to the universe there are moral mm-hmm. laws essentially like gravity or mm-hmm. whatnot um how, how do you how do you get to that place in a deterministic sure. universe can i ask a clarifying question first yeah absolutely yeah. when you're when, you're just, just, uh, just, no I just want it's, it's gonna it's, it's Jim's question I just want to add a dimension when you say there's an underlying truth of the matter of morality is that are you saying that solely in a human construct are you saying that's universal like if we met Alpha Centurions or Betelgeusians that they would have the exact same moral facts of the universe that, that we do or do you think that's okay. contingent upon the human frame go yeah so, so there's a couple of complications there so my my approach to metaethics, which is the study of the nature of moral truths themselves, right? Where normative ethics is like what you ought to do and ought to do. This is like what does ought mean, right? Um, 
I, I am, I am, I'm, I'm going to use some terms here, but I'm going to make it very simple, hopefully. I'm what's called a moral foundationalist, which is to say, I believe there are certain foundational truths which we can unpack and we can talk about and we can look at examples. But at the end of the day, there's not like a much of a further chain of argument to be given to justify them, essentially. So let me give an example to make it easy. Um, all things being equal, and that's going to be important. We'll talk about that in a second, right? One ought not to cause suffering, okay? Um, let's unpack that a little bit, right? Suffering is a thick term. People can debate what we mean by suffering, but I think we can all agree that there is something like it is to suffer and that to some extent, some entities suffer and some don't. And that I think if we understand the concept of suffering, we know it to be you know, for lack of a better phrase, has has to be avoidedness built into it, right? It's a psychological state that is of a sort of negative value that we shouldn't, and we should avoid it, and we should avoid producing it in others. Um, and then we have uh, this all things being equal part. So, as I see it, there are a couple, some some number of moral foundations like this that are all true in the sense that they apply in all situations where there are entities for which they would apply to like a being that can suffer um but they sometimes come into conflict and we're all familiar with this happening right so a classic example would be a conflict between rights and harm right if we respect people's rights sometimes harm comes about as a result and the idea would be if you really value uh, rights, you're okay with losing out on some amount of harm prevention in order to preserve those rights. So in those situations, you have a debate about what is the right trade-off between these moral foundations. But in that situation, it remains true, both all things being equal, one ought to reduce suffering or prevent suffering, and all things being equal, one ought to respect the rights of entities that have rights. It just is the case that one of those gets defeated in your cost-benefit analysis to some extent. It doesn't mean it stops mattering at all. So what I would then say is I think it's true across the universe and for all entities that these moral truths are true. How they play out for different entities is going to depend on the nature of those entities. So, if, for example, we came across the Alpha Centurions and, you know, whereas I experience extreme suffering when someone saws my arm off, they find it really, really pleasurable or something, right? Then we would say, well, for them, it's okay to saw their arms off, right? But only because it still follows the basic fundamental principle that you should promote pleasure, reduce suffering, etc. And it would also be true for the Alpha Centurions that when they come across us, it is wrong for them to saw our arms off, even if they think it's really pleasurable for them because it's bad for us. So, in, so what we would say then is those moral claims, those applied moral claims are objective. They are independent of the Alpha Centurion's beliefs or my beliefs or anything like that, but they are context sensitive where the context includes my personal psychology or something. Um, so yeah, that hopefully that clarifies a little bit about like their universal but they're um, defeasible. And then some moral disagreements are people just being wrong about things. And some moral disagreements are people reasonably disagreeing about what the right trade-offs are between two values. So there's, I think, a range of acceptable decisions about how much freedom we should allow people in society. But outside of that range, there are choices like totalitarianism that are just objectively bad. 
And that, okay. that's still a construct of the beings that live within the universe, not not an essential law. Like, that suffering is bad. I think it's a construct, oh, I, right? It's not... Well, what, it's not what, do you, what do you mean by what, a construct? If I asked you if, I asked you mm-hmm. if there were no humans in the universe yeah. or no conscious beings in the universe, would there be morality? You'd probably say right. no, right? So, well, us, so this... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a complicated question, right? Um, and... and there are sort of two answers I think you can give here, neither of which is a serious problem for my view. So uh, let's go back to the comparison between the speed of light, at, right? If you have a universe in which there's no particles, right, do you still have a speed of light? It seems like maybe not, right? Because it's it's really just a description of the features of that universe, right? Mm -hmm. If you wanted to, you could then say also, the claim, all things being equal, one ought not to cause suffering, is really only makes sense when you apply it to a universe that has beings in it that can suffer. And if you if you buy that, that's fine. It just means that like these claims are still real and objective, but they only are instantiated in universes where they apply. Or if you prefer, I actually just like the the view that like, look, these are just true claims. They just may not always apply to certain things in certain universes, right? So it might be true, for example, that um, you know human beings are conscious sentient beings that can flourish and that's an objective truth even if there are universes with no human beings in them yeah i I get what you're saying there certainly um Mm -hmm. that makes sense and yeah the, the idea that like laws only exist in context of a universe that makes those laws make sense um or has something to apply those laws to yeah, right. So we wouldn't say then that the speed of light. I mean, like we would. So this gets complicated, right? The speed of light is, in a sense, a construct. It's using words that we sure. made up, right, and such. Yeah. But it isn't a construct that isn't attempting to describe the actual nature of things. And yeah. so, what I would say about moral claims is that they are at least attempts by us with our limited language to describe the actual moral nature of the universe. Um, that would be in contrast with classical, like anti-realists who would say moral claims are just statements of personal preference. Like I really like ice cream or they're just statements of, you know, some thicker kind of preference. But again, it's just like all of the truth is coming out of our personal preference. Um, but I, you know, my pushback to those kinds of perspectives at the end of the day, I think they have to bite a bullet where hypothetically, let's say we all came together and we said, we're going to make it the case that like torturing puppies is moral, right? We're going to vote on it. And because morality is just what everybody thinks it is, if we all agree to think that way, then it will become moral to torture those puppies, right? I think intuitively we all reject, we, we should all reject that as like, that's not how morality works, right? Clearly that's not how it works. It's still causing suffering to the puppies. So it's still wrong. We're just mistaken, right? The societies that believed in slavery were just mistaken that it was moral, etc. Um, so that's my perspective, at least. Hmm. What would you say to your dark counterpart? The person who is not a <laughs> altruist, uh, the, uh, a person who's a sadist and says, you know what gives me pleasure? Seeing people suffering. What gives me more pleasure is making people suffer. And I wasn't I didn't choose to be born this way and Mm -hmm. you can't hold me responsible for any of my actions. So fuck it. I'm going to I want to go full reaver. Uh, Is that Mm -hmm. the thing that bothers you? Because like it seems to me it seems to me that like you would not be able to really from first principles tell that guy that they're wrong. 
other than like, well, everybody else, you know, yeah. we're mo- most of us are not sadists. So, you know, you should respect our was like, well, you should respect me. I am a sadist. And I, I don't know what, what, what how would you mm-hmm. begin to like, because I think it's because like, yeah. I, I think that's what yeah, they're this is, this is playing a with. It's a huge and this problem. This is also what sure. they're playing with Westworld. Like now that I've had this conversation with you, like Dolores's development over three seasons where she's right. the naive person who things are happening. And then she's the vengeful angel. That's like, oh, you bastards. I'm going to get revenge until the surprise ending of season three, where she's like, you know what? The I can't hold these people responsible for anything. And in fact, I'm going to try to die to show them a, a better way. Yeah, that makes a lot of Jesus. sense. But like, but how do you how do you argue against the the Hales or the Man in Blacks or the the sadist version of that? Yeah, and this I should point out is one of the foundational problems in ethics. So if you go back and you read Plato's Republic, it's a book about what do you do about the Man in Black, right? Um, sure. It, Oftentimes, traditionally, it's 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 referred to as the coherent Caligula problem. So, like, can you really convince Caligula that he ought not to act immorally? I think for present, I, I tend to like to now call it the problem of the Joker. Right? Some mm-hmm. folks really just thoroughly want to watch the world burn. What do you say to them? Um, and unfortunately, the answer is not not much. Um, and and I think realistically, that was the answer before we had this conversation. Right? So even if all of the things I just said were False. You don't have that much more to say to him than I do. So here's here's how quickly this argument is conversation is going to go. Right. Either. First of all, I'm going to say this person is deeply, deeply unlucky for being the person that they are. Right. And that's another classic Socratic answer, which is the person who causes immorality suffers worse than the person who experiences it because they are an immoral person. And that is the worst experience, worst thing that you could suffer on this view. Um, but like what you're going to say is you're either going to try to convince them that they ought to prefer something else or that they can find more pleasure in something else or, you know, that they, would find more pleasure if society didn't view them as a monster and act accordingly or something like that. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't think you can say, first of all, that they are irrational in some, I can prove it with logic kind of way. Um, I think there is a kind of, you know, if you really like, if those are your thoroughgoing motivational sets, then it's reasonable for you to act the way you are in trying to achieve those sets. At that point, and this is always going to be the case, we just have to try to stop them. Like, it's not, you're not going to solve the problem of sociopaths or um, individuals who just desperately actually want to cause harm. And that's why, like, I'm not for getting rid of, you know, quarantine facilities, let's call them, for individuals like that. Um, And especially if they can't really, you know, they genuinely can't be rehabilitated, which is the case with some individuals, then you just have to keep them away from other people. That's the only option. And like, um, you know, one of my friends used to say that like at the end of the day, there's no solution that's just arguments. At some point, it's going to be ruled by the boot. Um, And what you want to hope is that you're lucky enough that the people who are controlling the boot are doing it for the right reasons and in the right ways um and they are you know treating those individuals as humanely as is possible given their very bad constitutive luck um and that we are doing our best in society to make as few people as possible like that if 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 society is part of the thing that's causing it right there's still some debate about um what mix of nature and nurture leads to a joker or something like that it's also important to note though that is a 
tiny, 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 tiny fraction of society. Sure. You are talking about uh, an infinitesimally small number of people. The vast majority of people enjoy roughly the same kinds of things within a range, right? And the vast majority of people are habituated to be squeamish towards immoralities of some sorts that can be, you know, made better or worse by society for sure. But like, I don't think you really have a lot of situations like that. I think you have a lot of situations where you've got to help people who generally want to see themselves as good people to do so in a way that isn't causing quite as much harm. And let me say, I think Westworld is about habituating people to be virtuous. One reading of this system is that, like, the point was you're giving the AIs a chance to uplift themselves into morality. Unfortunately, it's done by having them suffer every kind of immorality possible. Um, But there is something true to the idea that I think one of the best ways to help someone understand why they ought to be moral is for them to watch something where someone suffers and to feel the dislike that they experience at that and to understand why where that's coming from and to strengthen that through practice. That's another reason why a lot of people's politics change because of personal experience. Right. You know, exactly. Because unless they have firsthand the good and the bad, then it's it's always going to be something they're dealing with that at an abstraction. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I, I want to bring it back to the show because I, I take it for granted mm. that uh, Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy are very well read. They probably rub shoulders and, and elbows with some of the, the, sure. most, the, the well, most well read and well argued philosophers of all time. Do you have an idea of where they might end up at the end of the series? Because they're definitely raising a bunch of questions. And that's something I've always wondered, like how much of this, mm. which side of the scale do you think their thumb is going to come on to? Um, as far as That's a good know, the nature of free will and the ro- the the host idea of morality versus human morality, do you have any insight? And in they're going to all be moral. They're going to all be deterministic moral realists because that's obviously correct. Uh, <laughs> or I, I never expect anyone to do that. Uh, no, um, I'm not sure. And I should say part of that is because I don't feel like I have a, a good sense of. West, what, what the project of Westworld is, and it's partly because I, um, it's not my favorite AI content. Um, I think it, especially in, in some of the earlier seasons, leans into some of the more like torture porny aspects of the AI debate that I think sensationalize these issues and move us away from the actual concerns. So for folks who are curious, there's a show called Humans. It's a BBC show that mm-hmm. I think uh, came out around the same time and is actually way better if you want to like get a sense of where we're headed in terms of real problems. Um, 
but so, so that being said, let me wildly armchair here a little bit. Um, the fact that like the protagonist has come around to this idea that humans can't be free in that kind of sense. You know, I think this ends up leading towards an attempt at reconciliation between the AIs and the humans in a way that minimizes harm and suffering. So I think it curbs the urge to just massacre all the humans, for example. Um, one of my favorite shows for people who are not philosophers who want to learn about philosophy is the very popular Good Place that was out for a while. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I know it's sort of rapidly fading in the cultural memory, um, but the ending of Good Place, I think, gets the, gets the answer right about what do we do about punishment. Um, I don't want to give it away for folks who haven't watched it, but it leans, I would say, towards what I call, what they call universal salvationism, which is the idea that like, Ultimately, I think everyone should be have a chance at salvation, right? Um, even if it takes a long, long time. Um, I think that's probably where Westworld ends up. That like the idea is that everyone deserves to be saved, including the humans. Um, but that also may just be, you know, uh, the fact that when you when you ask a philosopher a question, what they're going to tell you is what they prefer, not what necessarily <laughs> is the case. Um, I would prefer that that's where they end up, but they may go in a different direction. They may make it ambiguous. You know, they may, I, let me say, given where I feel like they've gone with philosophy, I would worry about a lost style, ambiguous ending that mm -hmm. doesn't give us a good answer on any of these issues. Um, that's, that's just my personal intuition, I guess, on the show so far. I feel like they are shading in a direction um, yeah. where like, you know, the robots are the robots the the hosts whatever you want to call them are um wow using slurs on your yeah, show I, I didn't realize yeah. it was that kind of party <laughs> i slip up for well jim is a raging robust uh, he's the an R well known Jesus. about him yeah well known uh yeah what they're doing with like the the host trying to sort of evolve humanity into what they are um i think is, mm -hmm, is where mm -hmm. you're getting at with that um so so mm -hmm. i i think especially in this latest season which i know you haven't seen yet but they are pushing the ball in that direction um, and I'm, yeah, I'm a kind of liberationist approach. I would, I would guess. Absolutely. Like, okay, lines. well yeah. these, these beings don't have, you know, free will as we think of it, but maybe we can give it to them. That sort of thing. You could also pro they could probably end up going in some place similar to the culture to bring it back to that earlier conversation. You know, some people are really against the culture because it's effectively a system run predominantly by AIs. Humans have some input, but it is the, you know, the, the, um, the minds themselves, the super intelligent minds that are dominant in that system. And, and you see similar concerns about, well, doesn't that, you know, deprive your life of meaning and purpose. And a lot of the culture books are about individuals in that society feeling a kind of ennui or anxiety about that reality and going on an adventure as a result. Um, you know, I, I could see Westworld going in a similar place where it has these super intelligent AIs and maybe the AIs decide, you know, it's fine for everybody to just be manipulated. Like they're not free anyway. Let's just make their lives happier <laughs> in that sense. Um, and, and so that does highlight another concern with this approach. There is a risk, if you believe my view, that you could become more sort of sympathetic to a lot of paternalism, which is when you take over people's lives and control them for their benefit. Um, I personally think some amount of paternalism is unavoidable and a good thing, but too much paternalism is a bad thing. And so how do we find that line based on this problem? You know, that, that's, that's continued sort of tricky applied work. 
Um, maybe they'll wrestle with that some. So that could be interesting. Mm-hmm. Here's two things because I, I just finished Player of the Game last week and it's fresh in my mind. Uh, one of the things mm-hmm. about this uh, Azad Empire that this culture guy is navigating through is they don't have prisons. They have these things called labyrinths where right. they drop a person in the middle and uh, it's they don't really describe it, but it sounds like you, as a person you are purported with like these simulated moral choices and based on how you make that choice, you either go deeper into the labyrinth mm-hmm. or out. And they make it, they say that like a virtuous man could wa- easily walk out of the labyrinth in less than 24 hours. You know, if he was right. wrongly imprisoned. Now, there's a lot of practical problems with that um, as they, the book kind of illuminates. But like, I wonder if when we see at the end of season one, like presumably, th- I think the Joy and Nolan said that this is potentially thousands of years in the future. And you see the man in black. So I guess it's the end of season two. The man in black's mm-hmm. daughter is running a fidelity check on him. It makes mm-hmm. me wonder if that's actually what they're doing or if this is some kind of labyrinth construct where even someone as irredeemably evil as the man in black, if you gave him enough time and development and suffering and chances to learn that he would become mm-hmm. safe enough. Like, is this his test to like he can be released to the robot host slash human utopia um, is it like a labyrinth type co- construct? Um, right. I wonder if they're going that way. The other direction is a lot of times when we look in human history, you know, there was a point in the earth where there's more than one, uh, you know, hominid walking around thinking thoughts. Mm-hmm. And uh, the conventional wisdom is the humanity it, it, uh, killed them off. Like we outcompeted them. There are no uh, Australopithecus, mm-hmm. there are no Neanderthals. But it's actually more accurate to say that we blended like there is Neanderthal DNA within uh, various human populations. I wonder if they're going to that to where hosts won't supplant the humans, but we'll merge in somehow. And they've already hinted that like humans can mm-hmm. be turned into hosts. Uh, you know, hosts can achieve sentience. I wonder if there's this labyrinth or hybrid um, theory that I've got has any, any kind of legs. Interesting. But, um, yeah. Um, and, I would say, you know, the hybrid thing is in in many senses the default outcome of transhumanism, right? Where it's actually a little weird in the culture world that like the augmented, you know, citizens of the culture are not more, you know, machine than than they They already are. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, sort of, right. And they like they improve their flesh substantially, right? But they don't um they don't tend to do a lot of by a lot of mechanical augmentation, um, you know, I think in, in in reality, it's more likely you're going to see a lot of more blending of us and the technology in those kinds of ways. So I think that that's a plausible place to go. I really like the point about the labyrinth, though. I liked the labyrinth metaphors in Westworld, and I, I wanted them to develop them more from a moral philosophy perspective, because I think those are the most interesting themes of like, what is it impact? Um, you know, what is the impact of being in Westworld on people's psychology, for example, right? That was the first questions was like, does this make you a worse person to be in this place where you can do this kind of thing? Um, so, so there's a couple of ways we could read the labyrinth stuff. One could be this basic virtue theory idea that the only way to become a moral person is to go through moral challenges and do the right thing. That it's like lifting you know weights to build your muscles. If you're never challenged ethically, you can't practice becoming ethical. Um, and so it could be the case that this is a space in which humans need to be trained to be ethical, or it could be a space in which the AI need to be trained to be ethical by going through a bunch of ethical scenarios and making ethical decisions 
quote unquote over and over again and experiencing what that's like um and then there's the kind of liberatory aspect of labyrinth symbolism which is the idea that like we're all trapped in the labyrinth that is our sense of self and that like part of the project here is getting out of that labyrinth by realizing that everything about you is you know luck and that like you couldn't change parts of yourself you don't have to feel attached to them you don't have to identify with that particular identity that was inscribed upon you anymore um and that's sort of like a plato's cave you know you're escaping the cave interpretation um so there were different ways in which i thought they were going with it i felt like i would have loved to see a little bit more of where that was going but maybe they'll come back to it in the last season that labyrinth symbology is still around um Mm -hmm. yeah so there's still the potential for them to play with that some more uh yeah i just want them to make clear sort of choices about how they're using it i feel like yeah Mm mm-hmm but certainly to, the idea was, you know, the labyrinth is how the AI bootstraps itself up to sentience. One of the problems mm-hmm. we haven't talked about here is that Westworld is really about how do you get from an AI that mimics personhood to an AI that's actually a person. And the theory it's presenting is if you put them in enough interpersonal scenarios, they eventually, you know, a, a, a person manifests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was the, the case early on. Certainly it's... um it's operating philosophy and i think it's moved past that which is encouraging right it's it's not just going to be an introductory course the entire time it's it's gonna evolve and and change as it goes um right so yeah i'm excited to see that well i think you've heard for the past hour or so two amateur uh uh, free will non-determinist sparring with an expert determinist um i wonder if you were to suggest a resource for people that wanted to see maybe people on equal intellectual footing going at it uh, or, or having conversations would illuminate some of these issues if they wanted to go, you know, they're not ready to crack a book, but maybe they would want to watch a YouTube video or listen to a podcast mm. or a lecture. Do you have any offhand that you would recommend? Yeah, sure. So if you want just a real knockdown debate about this, um, Ben Burgess and I on his channel had a debate about the free will stuff. um, And he takes a very compatibilist sort of approach. um, And you can, I think, get a sense of what the trade-offs there are quite clearly. Um, If you want to hear about this more in the philosophical world, um, we've done a couple of episodes of Philosophers in Space about this. um, So you can just look for any of the ones that have like free will uh, on any of the tags on them. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other. I had a really, really good chat about this stuff on um, What's Left of Philosophy, uh, which is a really good podcast. That's like those folks are grad students and it's sort of pitched more towards like grad level though. I think our conversation was not especially dense on the political philosophy jargon. Um, and they had some really good, I think follow-up questions though. They were, they were much more sympathetic to the thing overall. I think I'm also very curious by the way, to hear if you are still feeling like you are, um, if there's something still like holding you back at this point, if you can have if you introspectively what it feels like to you, it is um, even if I can't, you know, fix it for us right here and now. Holding us back from. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, I'm not sure what exactly what you're asking. me. Oh, oh, so holding you back like like part of this conversation has been funny because I feel like 
y'all are doing something I see a lot, which is the like, well, I agreed with all of that, but something <laughs> still feels wrong here. Changing what your still world feels view is here? hard, right? Well, uh, yeah, but even not, you know, you know, even if you are changing it, it's interesting to me that there is resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, my personal intuition is that that resistance is often in the like psychological sense, the ego, the, the, the sense of self that yeah. um, protecting itself, essentially, right? Resisting its own destruction in this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need but to get a whole lot more Buddhist. That's a good this. example because, like, I have. Um, I mean, that's a good question because, like, I I definitely recognize the cognitive dissonance I'm feeling, and I've articulated that. But like, I guess if I was to if I was to describe what I feel at the end of this conversation is, um, I'm not sure the utility of adopting your philosophy over the one that I already hold. Um, ah. Because I have a person like mm-hmm. myself who came from a very conservative, very you know, bootstraps, very personal responsibility background has through a framework that has nothing to do with the, you know, uh, being deterministic arrived at the similar prescriptions. So it's kind Mm -hmm. of like, you know, if you, at the end of the day, if, uh, you know, I'm saying, uh, uh, you know, two cycle engines are better than four cycle engines because they're lighter weight and they have more power and all that stuff. And then I heard you, I watched a video and you said two cycle engines are better than four cycle engines because two cycle engines make the room room noise. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I, we arrived at the same place, but I'm not sure the, the, the path necessarily connects or if it's a better uh-huh. reason to support two cycle versus four cycle over the ones I've got. That That's the only, I'm not offended or like, uh, oh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not feeling like uh, I got the change determinacy slipping over me. If I, 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 in fact, the other thing is like, I find in your discussion of your deterministic world, it seems like there's tons of people with agency making choices that matter. They're influencing things, which is the exact opposite of what I think of in terms of, my preconceived notion of determinist oh, universe. It's one of those things, like, things that matter. Maybe not making choices that matter, right? Well, right. And, what's, uh, so, and, and, yeah. and where rubber hits the road, what is the difference there? And and I'm still that's like say like I'm not I, I'm trying not right. to be closed minded. It's more of like I really need to know more about this. You know? no, I think that's really helpful for me. So what I would say is this is not the only way to engender compassion and humility. There are lots of ways to I think habituate people. This is just to me one thing that hangs up a lot of people on that journey and so for a lot of folks I think it would be very beneficial to be having these kinds of conversations if you've gotten you know lucky as I'll say and you know you didn't need to learn all about luck in order to sort of intuitively come to grasp the moral implications of the argument I think that's great or you know you got there through Marxism or whatever I don't whatever it is um, that's great I just think a this argument is needed for some people I think if you don't take out this argument some people never get there and like I agree B, that. I think also B if you if you agree with these positions this is just one more you know tool in your toolbox for you know explaining them defending them justifying them stuff like that and I think it's a I also think it's very useful to take a bunch of disparate conversations about white privilege and class and all these things and say these are all conversations about luck you are all talking about the same arguments about moral responsibility and and like people's features and stuff and let's let's recognize that they all come together and then we can you know debate if i'm right or you're right or something um but i think when we see that big picture it, it you do start to see the value of thinking about it and talking about it in these terms if you're lucky i guess 
sort of but yeah, I, I, I totally get, pers- I get what you're doing. Some, yeah, go ahead. Like, like shifting a perspective to a more universal approach as sort of opposed to an individualistic approach. Like yeah, so one implication of this is that it, it significantly reduces attachment to the kind of radical individualism that we see in America, yeah. um, which is highly tied to this sense of responsibility and, and grit and all these sorts of conservative mm-hmm. things. Yeah, it doesn't mean necessarily that like you have to completely abandon everything about yourself for the other. It's more about you recognize that the self-other distinction is is... Uh, to some extent arbitrary and that like you are radically interconnected with other entities um, and you don't need to protect your beliefs, especially beliefs. One of the big things that I find is that people are so stuck on I I believe this I chose to believe this and I will never let go of it because that's my identity whereas if you just acknowledge that like all of your beliefs are luck and then someone comes along and undermines one of them you're like oh well I'm glad I don't have that bad luck anymore. Yeah, I think especially like um, as society continues to secularize, if it continues to secularize, um, one of the things I think, yeah, one thing I think that the the atheists and secular folks have done to their detriment is abandon the philosophical, spiritual side of the conversation. And um, to the extent that this would become like a secular religion uh, that people can Mm -hmm. kind of like get or unified around, I think that also would be. But that's like I was also coming from the idea of like, well, if you do live in a world where most people are more spiritual, religious, then this is like two bridges already too far for them. Um, but for the, people that are already on this side, mm, kind of like, yeah. well, now what? Well, okay, I'm a free moral agent, quote unquote. Now what? This is a this is an on ramp towards, I think, mm-hmm. you know, because even if you're wrong, you're mm-hmm. uh, in my world, you doing the right things for the wrong reasons. I guess you'd say the same thing about me. Even if I'm if I'm wrong about free will, I'm still you know, arriving at the same place and we're, we're still able to, to make progress. I think, yeah, it'd be mm-hmm. super, super beneficial for people who are feeling like, well, why, why shouldn't if, if in absence of any other moral fact, why shouldn't I just be purely selfish? You know, why shouldn't yeah. I make sure me and mine got mine? Um, this is a, a useful way out of that trap, I guess. Yeah. And to tie it back to the atheism stuff again, I talk to a lot of atheists who come out of religion and sort of have a a moral crisis of like, why should I be moral now? Because God doesn't exist. Like, what do I do here? Not all of them. Some of them, you know, quickly pick up humanism or something like that. But for some, they go through a period, I think, of like, you know, fuck it, let's do whatever we want. Um and, I, you know, I think it's very similar. It's a very similar sort of nihilistic crisis that this can help sort of bring you out of. Um, and uh, sorry, there was something else that you were saying that I thought was really valuable. Now I'm just blanking on it for a second. Um, I remember what it was. I apologize that I, I blanked okay. on it for a second there. It was the part about religion. Um, it's, it's saying it's two bridges too far. Um, it's true sometimes, but I, I can also code switch this into certain religions pretty effectively. So, for example, if you're a person who believes the phrase there but for the grace of God go I, you're, you're on the way already, right? You're already right. accepting mm-hmm. or, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. Same idea, yeah. right? I just have to help them, you know, switch it into the language a little Connect bit, but it's the dots. same intuition we all have i think an intuition of forgiveness and we are all balancing it against um an intuition that some people deserve something things and so i'm just sort of trying to kill one of those intuitions and um promote the other one essentially 
Well, Aaron, it's great having you on the show. Uh, really appreciate you doing that. Also, uh, really appreciate the, I guess, a mutual fan of ours for putting us together because this wouldn't happen mm-hmm. without uh, uh, them them uh, saying we should talk on Twitter. Uh, if people have been intrigued by these thoughts and ideas and want to hear more about your thoughts on philosophy as it intersects with science fiction or just in general, uh, mm-hmm. where can you be found on the Internet? Yeah, I can be found too many places on the internet because I'm terminally online. You f- Podcast-wise, on all your pod apps, you can find Philosophers in Space and Embrace the Void. Like I said, we are often talking about these kinds of issues because also they're very big in the sci-fi world, I think. You know, personhood, free will, these are like the, the bread and potatoes, uh, meat and potatoes of um, science fiction. Uh, and then over at Embrace the Void, those debates range, you know, not all debates, a lot of them are just conversations and they range pretty widely, um, but there are on occasions arguments about things like free will, a lot of discussions about atheism, other sorts of social justice, uh, culture war-y kind of stuff. And then um, I have a monthly article on the UK Skeptic Mag, again, not the Michael Shermer dumpster fire, but... Uh, there I have I do a lot of writing about conspiracism because that's another thing that I'm obsessed with Um, and also articles about things like skepticism about free will i wrote like as i mentioned the article where i you know defended like there's no way that i can prove that i don't believe in free will but there's also no way that you can prove that i still believe in free will um so we're at a bit of a loggerhead on that one um and also an article about why it would be better i think if people moved away from the use of privilege language and towards talking about luck especially if you want to talk to conservatives about this stuff because even though they don't love discussions of luck nearly as much as i as we might um they are far less resistant to it, it seems, than the word privilege, for example, for various reasons. Um, so I guess that's that's pretty much everything. And then, you know, various showing up on great shows like this. Well, yeah, I, this has been a great conversation. It's very interesting. I'm glad we're, it, it, it seems like it, uh, it touches on the core material. And I imagine a lot of people of this audience is going to be uh, intrigued by it, to say to say the least. So thanks for coming on. Uh, if you want to yeah. look for uh, uh, Aaron elsewhere, like you said, Embrace the Void podcast. Um, at ETV, and- uh, sorry, at ETV pod is the Twitter account as well that I'm obsessively on. If you want to respond to me and have me respond to you, <laughs> you can also DM me. It's fine. And philosophy in space. If you want to follow him on that, I we're I don't follow that Twitter account as much, so it take, the responses will be a little slower. But yes, either of those. And we're going to try to link as many of those in the show notes to make it easy for you to find as possible. Uh, Aaron, Appreciate thank it. you again for coming on the podcast and talking Westworld with us. Thank you so much, and let's get y'all over on my podcasts at some point to have more fun discussions. This has been great. I'm I'm certainly down for that. Yeah, I can ask you all hard questions then. <laughs> yes. All right, that will do it uh, for this episode of Watching Westworld. Thanks to Aaron for joining us and uh, starting the path of uh, uh, helping us understand these 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 heady concepts of free will and uh, predeterminism, et cetera, and as they apply to Westworld. Uh, I'm sure you probably have a lot of questions or comments on this material, and if you would like to send those in, westworld at baldmove.com is the address for that. Uh, we'll be taking those questions uh, and anything you want to talk about Westworld, Westworld at baldmove.com. Of course, we'll be back tomorrow with a feedback show. And uh, of course, this weekend, we'll have the instant take. If you're a club member, you can join us live for that and the instant talk. If you want to be a club member, support.baldmove.com. Five bucks a month gives you ad-free feeds and tons of premium content like the instant talk and instant take podcast live. And uh, we'll see you next Tuesday for the main show once again. 
Thanks for joining us again. Thanks to Aaron. Check out his links. Uh, We've got those posted in the show notes and uh, we'll see you next time. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya. Thank you.